Old Testament Background to Hebrews, 2 Samuel and Psalms. The fourth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on October 26, 2014 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2014. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Okay, we're in chapter 1 of Hebrews, still, and, but we're going to spend little, very little time, if any, in Hebrews today. We're going to take an excursion into the Old Testament, but just before I do, to briefly review what the argument is so far, it's actually quite simple. It's not easy to get there in the text, but, but once we understand what Paul is doing, pretty easy argument. He's saying, in the past, the prophets in the, in the Old Testament in, gave us fragments of what it was that God had promised and fragments of what it was that God was doing in the world. And there, that information was revealed to them in a variety of different ways by God. But he says, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. So in what he has in mind clearly is Jesus. Jesus came and put together the last missing pieces to the puzzle to put the whole picture together so that we know what God had purposed, we know what God had promised, and with the teaching of Jesus, we have everything filled out for us through his teaching. And then what Jesus taught us, he said, was confirmed to us in two ways. One, by the miracles that Jesus performed, and then secondly, by the eyewitnesses to that teaching who explained and passed on to us what it is that they heard Jesus teach, whose teaching was also confirmed by the miracles that they performed. So we, we see there the very explicit role that he ascribes to miracles in the time of Jesus and the apostles. And then the punchline is the angeloi, the theophanies, the appearances of God in history, the pillar of fire, the pillar of clouds, the burning bush on Mount Sinai, the various times that God appeared as a human being in the form of a human being and wrestled with somebody or ate dinner with somebody or whatever, that these, what theologians call theophanies, appearances of God, these appearances of God, you didn't ignore what they said. You ignored what they said at your own risk. To re ignore and disobey the commandment of God that came through the form of these theophanies was to bring judgment upon yourself. So you didn't ignore them. His argument here in Hebrews 1 is, but if you, if you receive just recompense if you ignored them, how much more so if you ignore his son? Because the son is a much more glorious, significant, an important figure in all of God's history than any one of the theophanies. Well, that's the point he has to prove. Really, the Son is more important than a theophany? Jesus of Nazareth, a Galilean peasant, is a more important being than the burning bush on Mount Sinai or the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night that led Israel through the wilderness? Really, he's more important than them? That's the point that he needs to prove. And he, to do so, he goes to a number of different psalms 
almost everything he quotes is out of the Psalms with one exception, well, with two exceptions in the first two chapters. So what I'm going to do today, I maybe I'll finish today, we might have to carry over to next week, I'm going to fill out the entire background of everything that Paul is thinking about what he knows from the Old Testament in order to make the case that he's making in chapter 1 of Hebrews. And we'll look at each one of those psalms and their place in the Old Testament revelation. So that's going to take us a little while, but I'll do it as briefly as I can. You'll probably want to refer to your Old Testament. You may not have brought one with you, but there should be one in the, in the pew in front of you. The translation isn't going to matter. I'm going to read from my notes, which is basically the New American Standard Version, and I have modified it here and there a little bit sometimes. But the story, if we go all the way back, I mean, we can go all the way back to Egypt. The people of Israel have been abandoned in Egypt. They're a slave class in Egypt. They're being oppressed by the Pharaoh in Egypt. God takes this man Moses, a Hebrew, from among them, raises him up, trains him up in the court of Pharaoh, and then eventually gets his attention when he has to flee for his life into the deserts of Moab. And there God meets him and appoints him to send back to his people to lead them out of Egypt. He does so. They go to Mount Sinai. God appears to them in the most spectacular display of the presence of God in all of human history. I mean, he pulled out all the stops. I mean, the mountain glowed. It shook. The cloud covered the mountain. He scared them to death. God really frightened Israel during that time. It was very clear that God was for real and someone that they had to deal with. And God makes a covenant with them that we know of as the law or the Mosaic covenant. Then they eventually make their way into the land that had been promised to their father Abraham several hundred years earlier. But there's a bunch of Canaanites in the land, so... God needs to go before them and drive out the Canaanites through a series of battles where God gave them victory, sometimes very miraculously and spectacularly, sometimes more mundanely, but they drove them out of the land. But before they go into the land, in Deuteronomy, Moses tells them, when you get into the land, you're going to want a king. You're going to start asking for a king. Don't you be wanting a king. Kings just tax you and they regulate you, and they rule over you, and they just make your life miserable. You don't want a king, so don't, don't be asking for a king. They go into the land, and they keep asking for a king, but God doesn't give them a king. He does give them what are called judges, people that he raises up to be leaders who have a prophetic role and a leadership role, and they lead them in victory against the enemies of God who are harassing them. But eventually, they keep asking for a king, and eventually... God relents and says, okay, you can have a king. And they have Saul. Saul is a handsome, strong, charismatic, the kind of leader that you would expect a kingly leader to be. He's exactly the kind of person that the world would pick for a king. And he's okay for a while, but as human history is wont to go, power corrupts, power goes to the head, you begin to think you're a pretty big deal, and he basically forgot who God was. He may go through the motions, and he may acknowledge God nominally, but he really, he, he's not a person who is trusting the God who made promises to these people. 
So God rejects him. God takes the throne away from him, and he gives it to this fairly insignificant and fairly not spectacular person called David. David was such a loser that his own father didn't even put him in a line for Samuel to pick from when he was supposed to pick the next king of Israel. He's just, he's a loser. You don't want David. But that's exactly who God picked, and he set him in the throne, drove out his enemies. And the one thing that David had going for him all along is that he trusted in the promises and purposes of God. He was committed to those. And if God said he was going to do something, he believed he was going to do it. So he's, he's king for a while. God gives him victory from his enemies. And now we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, I'm just going to read through here, but I might pause and comment as we go through here. Now, it came about when the king lived in his house, because he had, he had built a palace for himself, and Yahweh had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And he's referring to the tabernacle that they had carried with them all the way from Mount Sinai, the structure of curtains that they would set up, and they would put the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, the compartment partitioned off by curtains that they called the Holy of Holies. That's where God lived, in, in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for Yahweh is with you. But in the same night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. One thing to note here, he's making some promises to David, but notice that the promises he's making to David are completely interconnected and intertwined with promises he's making to the people of Israel themselves. I'm going to give you, the people of Israel, a place. And what's the place he's talking about? The same place that he had promised them several hundred years earlier when he made a promise to Abraham about, I'm going to give you this land, and I will take you into the land, and I will make you a great nation. I'll take your people into the land. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will give them rest in the land. He's just reiterating the promise that he had made several hundred years earlier. So I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. And notice that this promise has never been fulfilled. I will plant them in a long, they will not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. So this is a promise for the distant future when David is speaking. It may even be the distant future from where we stand right now. Who knows? 
but it, it's not anything that has ever been fulfilled yet in human history. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. Now, some versions of the Greek translation read, and you will make a house for Yahweh, and rather than Yahweh will make a house for you. That doesn't really make any sense, because as chapter 7 goes on, he repeats what it is that he had said to him, and there's nothing in any text in verse 727 that says, you will make a house for Yahweh. When he repeats what he said, it's that Yahweh will make a house for you. So what exactly is he saying? David, you're not going to make a house for me. I'm going to make a house for you. David, you're not going to make a permanent structure for me to dwell in. Rather, I'm going to make a permanent structure for you to reign in. That's how he's using the metaphor, because obviously he's not literally building David a house. But what he means by that is, I'm going to build a dynasty, a political structure, and that political structure is going to be the basis for your reign, for your rule. And as we're going to see here in a second, it's going to be an everlasting rule. It'll be eternal, permanent. So that's the house I'm going to build for you, David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, I would argue that he's talking here about Solomon, the one who is a descendant after him that will come forth from him, that God, whose kingdom God is going to establish, the one who's going to build a house for God is Solomon, who built the first temple in Jerusalem and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, David doesn't know how Solomon, God is not telling David how Solomon's kingdom is going to be established forever. You and I know that that's ultimately through his descendant, Jesus. But David doesn't know that. Solomon wouldn't know that. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of man. But my loving kindness, my chesed, shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So he says to him here, speaking specifically with respect to Solomon, I'm going to establish his throne. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Okay, the question is, what's the significance of that? We would be likely to just kind of pass over that as some kind of sentimental mush of some kind, except that the rest of the Old Testament, the Psalms, and especially the New Testament, makes a huge big deal out of this claim. That's where the title, Son of God, comes from. And the biggest deal in the New Testament is whether or not it's the case that Jesus is the Son. Is Jesus the Son, or is he not the Son? If he's the Son, then he's the one who ultimately is going to be the fulfillment 
of all that David is being promised by God here. I'm going to establish your throne. You're going to have a son, Solomon, and I'm going to establish his throne. He's going to build a house for me. And I'm going to establish a relationship with Solomon that can be described as I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Well, what is he talking about? In order to understand what he's talking about, we'd have to go into the background of the ancient Near East. Israel at this time is surrounded by groups of people who will claim of their king that their king is the son of their God. You can go on the internet and find inscriptions that have been uncovered in Egypt where you have a picture of the pharaoh and then you have some kind of inscription, so-and-so, the son of Re or the son of Horus, depending upon how old it is and what time in, in the history of Egypt we're looking at. The king was conceived of as being the human embodiment of the rule of the god. Now, in, in ancient polytheism, you had all kinds of different aspects of reality, created reality, that represent the god. So Amun-Re was represented by the sun in the sky. So the Egyptians would worship the sun. They'd worship it not because they're worshiping a ball of hot gas. They're worshiping it because that's Amun-Re's token within created reality. The pharaoh was one more of his tokens within created reality. So to worship the pharaoh was to worship Amun-Re. To obey the pharaoh was to obey Amun-Re. So that concept was already current. Well, no such relationship had ever been established with Saul. Saul was just a king, but God had never come to Saul and said, I will be a father to you and you will be a son to me. You will be the very embodiment of my rule. That's not a promise that got made to him, but it's a promise that's being made to David and his descendants. Okay, now that what's critical to understand here, and this becomes at the heart of the argument of Hebrews chapter 1, is David is a human being. Solomon is a human being. Rehoboam is a human being. And every future descendant of David right down the line is a human being. To be a son of David is to be an ordinary mortal man. And yet this ordinary mortal human being is being given the promise of a status and a role and a title of being the son of God. I, Yahweh, will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Okay? That's what he's promising here. This is, this is pregnant with meaning. And so to just kind of pass over it and not recognize what he's saying would, uh, would be to not understand the covenant that he's making, the promise that he's making at all. And then he stresses his chesed. They often translate it loving kindness, but God's chesed is represented by how intractably, inviolably faithful he is to do what he says he's going to do. If God says he's going to do something, if he's made a promise, then he's going to do it. It doesn't matter if it's 5,000, 10,000 years later. If God made a promise, that promise is going to be kept because God is a God of chesed. So my chesed, that is, I promised you this kingdom, I promised you this kingdom will be forever, that will never depart from you, David. I took it away from Saul. I took the throne away from Saul, but I never promised him an eternal kingdom. You, I'm promising an eternal kingdom to, and my chesed will not allow me to ever take that away from you. 
So what if you're an unrighteous jerk? I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men, he says. So if Solomon transgresses, if Solomon is is disobedience, I'll correct him. I will discipline him. But what I will never do is go back on my promise and that his kingdom will stand forever. So your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Now, let's go on. Look at how David responds. Then David the king went in and sat before Yahweh, and he said, Who am I, O Lord Yahweh, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? So noticing he's seen the disconnect between who he is as a person, his smallness, his weakness, his insignificance, his humanity, really, on the one hand, and this incredible thing that he's promised him. And I think really, as, as we will see from some of the Psalms, what he really has in mind is that you would call me the son of God, that you would make me the embodiment of your Yahweh's rule and reign over the whole created order we're going to see in the Psalms. You would make me that individual. That's crazy. <laughs> that is just too much. Who am I, O Lord God, O Lord Yahweh? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? That is, that you've made this kind of promise to me about an exalted status. So remember David's response here, because we're going to have a psalm that I think puts that response into a poem, into poetry. And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord, Yahweh, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. Notice that David gets it, that this is a promise with respect to the distant future. For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future, and this is the Torah of man, or the namas of man. Don't remember how the New American Standard translated it. Custom, translated it custom. But it's literally, this is the Torah of man. This is the namas of of man, O Lord, Yahweh. And I, I think what he's saying here is, Yahweh, you're treating it as such a small thing, but do you realize what you just promised me? You promised me an eternal kingdom, a kingdom into the way distant future where I, my house, is going to be established forever and the one who rules as king in this house will be your son. Do you understand what you just promised me? And then he says, this is the Torah or the namas of man. What is he saying? You've made a binding promise, God. This is not just a throwaway musing on your part. This is your Torah This is your namas. You've made a binding commitment to accomplish this thing for me, and you throw it out there so lightly, God. But wow, what an incredible promise that you've just made and how significant it is. It's binding on all of mankind. This is a promise that will never go away. Again, what more can David say to you, he says, for you know your servant, O Lord Yahweh, For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O Lord Yahweh, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation, notice now he's going to tie in the promise that got made to David again with the promise that was made to Israel, the people of Israel. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself. 
and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and you, O Yahweh, have become their God. Now therefore, O Yahweh, God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, Yahweh of the hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord Yahweh, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord Yahweh, have spoken, and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. So he basically prays to him based on the promise that's been made to him. He's basically praying, I ask you to do, to go ahead and get on with doing what you have promised to do. So for the purposes of Hebrews 1, the the most significant thing here from Paul's perspective is that this is a promise that's being made to an ordinary human mortal descendant of David. This ordinary human mortal descendant of David is going to be given a permanent enduring kingdom. His promise to be the ruler of that enduring permanent kingdom. That's the Davidic covenant. Okay, Let's, let me pause there for any questions you have on the Second Samuel passage. So what became of the issue with God's house in this conversation? I mean, it, it does make sense that God gets sort of chuckles and says, what, you can build me a house? Be mm-hmm. real, but let me build you a house. That makes sense because God's got this, this long-term plan. They just sort of forgot about putting God's ark in a temple at this point. Um, well, he says Solomon will build a house for me, and that's in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, speaking of Solomon, David's descendant, which is what happened until it got destroyed. So it's not David's kingdom, it's Solomon's kingdom. Okay, yeah, great question. When we get to the song, if all we had to go on was Second Samuel 7, it would be easy to interpret it that the first son of God is Solomon, and David doesn't get that title and doesn't have that category. But I think when we get to the Psalms, we're going to see that, and you get a hint at it, you can see why David would conclude this, because God keeps calling it David's house. So because it's David's house, the promise that pertains to anyone in David's house is also a promise to David. So when he says, with respect to Solomon, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me, basically what he's saying is, I'm going to put the king of this house in that relationship to me. Well, David understands that applies to him as well. So we'll see Psalms where, where, in fact, the first Psalm we'll look at is David marveling that God has appointed him, David, the son. Okay? So there's no allusion to uh, the Messiah in verse 13, who the him is? Because I've, I've always taken it to be David and Solomon, but as I listen to this, I, the throne of his kingdom forever, and that kind of sounds like what he did with Jesus. Yeah, but what's forever? Not Solomon. It's his throne. Right. His throne is forever, and that's true. But notice this has to be Solomon, because look at 14. 
I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my hesed shall not depart from him. So he's making a very clear point that I know Solomon's going to screw up. I know he won't be righteous in the way that he's supposed to be righteous. And I'll deal with him. I'm going to correct him. I'm going to discipline him. I will punish him, if you will. But what I'm not going to do is go back on my word. His throne is going to endure forever. I will not take the throne away and give it to some other family or some other line of descent. It belongs to David's, to the, it belongs to the son of David, and I will, I will not take it away from him. So there are people who want to read Jesus into this, but it just doesn't fit naturally because the very contrast between, okay, if he screws up, I will discipline him, but what I'm not going to do is take my hesed away from him, is not even worth saying with respect to Jesus. Why would he anticipate the one who's coming, the sinless one who's coming, who's really qualified to be the son forever and ever? Why would you anticipate the dilemma of what are you going to do when he screws up? Are you going to, take your, are you going to remove your hesed from him? And I, I just don't think that would be worth saying with respect to the true final Messiah, Jesus. Okay. Sorry to interrupt, but if you go look at First Chronicles 22.9, this is David talking to Solomon. First Chronicles 22.9. Start with seven. David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house in the name of Yahweh, my God, but the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have much, shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you. You shall be a man of rest, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. That's pretty clear. Okay? This is sort of on the similar topic, and I forget exactly where, but there's somewhere, I'm pretty sure this is in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says to, I think it was one of King Josiah's, who's one of King David's descendants, one of his evil sons or grandsons, who was one of the last kings of Judah before it was wiped out by Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. that says something that, if you don't read it carefully, could be interpreted in, in which God is basically going back on his promise and taking away the line of David away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, when we study anything in human language, and it's no different in the Bible, I don't know exactly what statement you're talking about, but I can, you know, I can guess, I can anticipate what it would be. It's very important that we understand what's intended by the user of that language in context. So I can hear God saying to the one in the line of David who's sitting in the throne in Jerusalem, I'm going to take the throne away from you. I can hear him saying that. Does that mean that he's going to go back on his promise to establish that throne as an eternal kingdom? Not necessarily. could mean that, but it, it depends on what he's doing. What happened historically? From the time of Babylon until Jesus came, there was no son of David sitting on the throne as king over Israel. just wasn't. That looks like God taking the throne away from 
the line of David, right? But although he took it away from the line of David physically, politically, there was no social institution where a son of David was ruling over the people of Israel, that's very different from God saying, as he did to Saul, I am no longer committed to you, I'm going to cut you off, and you will, neither you nor your descendants will ever be king in Israel again. That's God removing his chesed. I mean, not really removing his chesed, but that's the language he puts. That's God saying, my chesed is irrelevant to you because you messed up and you've become disqualified and I'm not going to give the kingdom to you. But what he said to David is, from Babylon on, those are the sons of David being disciplined with a rod of iron and being chastised with the strokes of men, right? That's what he said he was going to do. I'll punish them. I'll discipline them. There are going to be consequences to their unrighteousness. But what I'm not going to do is forget the promise that I made to David that it's going to be his house that I will establish forever. Not going to forget that. So when it comes time to do it, I'm going to establish a son of David in the throne and he will rule forever. And the people in the time of Jesus, that's what they understood. That's what they were expecting. At a couple of times in the Gospels, they call the one that they expect to come the coming one. That's their title for him. There's got to be one coming who is going to fulfill the promises because these jerks sure haven't fulfilled the promise. So there's got to be one who is to come who is going to be the fulfillment of all that was promised to our father David. So we're waiting for the coming one, the one who will be the fulfillment of that. Okay? From this passage, they wouldn't know that there was a coming one. I think if all you had to go on was 2 Samuel 7, you could read 2 Samuel 7 that it's going to be an unending, undying dynasty of son of David after son of David after son of David after son of David. You could read it that way. But by the time we get to the Psalms, David has already figured out in his lifetime, no, it's not going to work that way. There's an individual coming. In fact, Psalm 110 is going to play a huge, big role in the book of Hebrews. And in Psalm 110, there's no other way to read it except that David has had the insight that the way God is going to establish his kingdom forever is there is one coming that David calls my Lord. David refers to as my Lord. There's one coming who is superior to David himself, who is going to be the one who's going to be the fulfillment of this promise that he's making to David's house. God will be a father to him, and he will be a son to him, and he will rule forever over an eternal kingdom, blah, 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 blah. So from this passage, it's established that God's going to take care of David. He's going to take care of Solomon, and that they're going to be his sons, and that David's physical physical lineage is going to continue on forever on the throne of David, but it's not necessary from this passage that those, that that after Solomon, that they're sons of God. Well, again, I suppose if all you had was 2 Samuel 7, then right. But there's a psalm that we won't look at, that we could look at, that makes it pretty clear, I think, that every son of David was considered to be inheriting the promise that was made to David, passed on down to Solomon, passed on down to his son. Every son of David who sits on the throne now enters into that relation, that promised relationship that God said that he was going to make between himself 
and the house of David. They're looking at it as a promise between them and the office, them and the house, not them and individual people. And I think the Psalms make that very clear. That, yeah, I was just wanting to make sure that I wasn't missing something. Yeah, I, I think if all we had to go on was this chapter, we wouldn't really necessarily know. Okay, now we want to go into a bunch of Psalms. The first one we'll look at is Psalm 8 which is the last one that he quotes in the series here. He actually is in the next chapter. But I'm going to take them in kind of in what I'm speculating is a kind of chronological order in order to kind of tell the story. The Psalms are poetry, and far be it from me to pretend to know anything about poetry. I have never met a poem that I understand. So my, I'm out of my league here on the one hand. But on the other hand, when it comes to the Psalms, I think I get them. I think I understand them. And I suppose this is true of all poetry, but I'll leave that up to you who know something about poetry. It's certainly true of the Psalms, that it makes all the difference in the world how you get oriented to what the circumstances are, what the situation is, what the realities are on the ground that the poem is attempting to describe. And if you get that wrong, then you're not going to understand the Psalm. You just aren't. You've got to understand the, the circumstances that are being described. And I think that's the challenge of poetry. And for you people who like poetry, that's why you like it. Is it it's by taking just these faint, bare clues in the text to be able to see back through the text to the circumstances that must underlie the poem. In any case, that's what we have to do with the Psalms, is as best we can reconstruct what is going on in the life of the author of this poem? And I think every one of the ones we'll look at is David, who's written the poem. What's going on in his life that he's seeking to describe to us the realities and the historical circumstances that he's confronting? And that's critical, because if we don't understand that, we're not going to understand what the psalm is saying, and we're not going to understand the significance of the psalm to Hebrews chapter 1. In fact, we're going to get it badly wrong. One of the things I've really noticed, that there's one of these psalms that we're going to look at in particular that we love to read devotionally. It's about somebody who's being afflicted and God bringing comfort to the afflicted. Well, who of us, when we're afflicted, doesn't want comfort? So we go to that psalm saying, teach me, teach me about what I can expect and how I can handle affliction and so on. Well, the promises that the psalmist embraces in that psalm are promises that never got made to me. So I'm, I'm misapplying the psalm if I think that I have the sh same assurances about how God is going to handle me and my life and how he's going to comfort me in my affliction. If I take that psalm as evidence that I can expect that from God, I've made a terrible mistake because the psalm is based on the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant back behind that. It's based on promises that God has made to David and Israel. And he's, as we saw in Samuel, David prays and says, why am I so bold to pray this prayer? Because uh, you like just promised me. <laughs> this is what you promised me you would do. So what I'm asking for is just what you told me that you promised me. Well, the Psalm we'll look at is a plea to God, a prayer to God based on what God has promised him. I can't take that and apply it to me. God never made such promise to me. But look how much we crave a faith, a religion that promises me that everything is going to work out just fine and it's not ever going to go wrong 
and God is going to give you peace and happiness and security and so on, and you can count on that. Many a person's faith is shipwrecked on that understanding of the faith because something happens in their life and it doesn't seem to match the expectation of a psalm that we've read. The psalmist said, cry out to God and he will hear me. How come God didn't hear me? The psalmist said, as I look into the future, such and such going to happen. It hasn't happened for me. It didn't happen to my friend. So what's with that? We would love that faith to be true, but that's not reality. That's not the world we live in. That's not the history that we're a part of. That's not the narrative that we're a part of. God has different purposes, different plans, different agenda for different people. And what God has promised David and the people of Israel is their gig, their thing. It's not mine. What's going to happen to me is what's going to happen to me. What God is going to give to me is what God is going to give to me. What God is going to withhold from me, God is going to withhold from me. And part of the challenge of being a human being living before our creator is being willing to accept being the creature with whom God can do whatever he wants, whose life he can take in whatever direction he wants to take it. That is a hard pill to swallow. That is the most obnoxious truth in the Bible, is that God has not promised me anything other than I will play the role that he has given me to play within the narrative that he's telling in history. There ain't no more. Now, we all know from personal experience, God is a merciful, gracious, compassionate, loving, wonderful creator who delights to give good gifts to his creatures. And we have all experienced those in abundance. But it's grace, not obligation. He gives it to us because he delights to give it to us, not because he owes it to us because we all are, after all, his creatures. Right? No, he owes us nothing. He gives us much, but he owes us nothing. Okay, that's irrelevant to Hebrews 1. But what's critical, the point I'm making is, in each and every one of these psalms, we have to reconstruct the background to the psalm to even understand what he's saying. Okay, Psalm 8, I'm going to argue, is it could very well have been written. Nathan comes to David, makes this promise, this revelation from God that has been given to the prophet Nathan, where God promises this kingdom to David. And remember how David responds? Wow, who am I and what is my house that you have brought me thus far, that you have made this kind of promise to me? He could have sat down immediately and written Psalm 8 at this point. Because I think Psalm 8 is basically a poem giving expression to his wonderment. Who am I that you have brought me thus far? Okay. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. I'll come back to that in a second. I think basically what he's saying is, you have embodied your strength, your authority, your power in an individual who used to be a bundle in his mother's arms, drinking milk from her breast. That's the weak little creature that you have decided to embody your sovereign reign over all of nature in. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is... 
I'm going to retranslate it slightly here. What is this man, I think referring to himself, David, what is this man that you take thought of him? Exactly what Second Samuel 7 said, who am I? Who am I? What is this man that you take thought of him, even the son of man that you care for him? So what is this man, David, that you have even given a second thought about him, even this one that you've appointed to be the son You've appointed me to be the son of God, even the son of man that you take care of him. Yet you have crowned him a little lower than God, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, or O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So notice he looks around at the created order and says basically, wow, who am I that you have taken thought of me? You have made me to rule over all that. Now, why all that? It's a very natural and reasonable and rational extrapolation from Second Samuel 7. Because the very concept of, I will be a father to you and you will be a son to me, if I'm right, that very concept is, I'm going to make you that human being who is the human embodiment of my rule and authority, Yahweh speaking, of my rule and authority. Well, what that means is, your rule and authority, David, has the same boundaries, it's the same domain as God's rule. Because it's God's rule that's embodied in you. What does God rule over? Every cotton-picking thing in all of created reality. The sun, the moon, the stars, the birds, the fish, the beasts of the field, everything. Everything belongs to God. God reigns over it all. And David, my reign is your reign. What you rule over, I rule over. And I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but that's the significance of Jesus' miracle when he stood up in the boat and said to the wind, stop, and to the waves, cut it out, and they did. He was exercising God's authority over nature, over every inch of created reality there. Well, that's exactly what God had promised David. You're my son, whom I'm going to establish in your throne, David. My son will exercise my Yahweh's rule, and Yahweh's rule is over the whole created order. Okay, so here's the significance of Psalm 8 for the argument in Hebrews. Psalm 8 is explicitly David wondering about, why me? Why would you make me your son? Why would you make me be the embodiment of your rule over all of creation? I'm just a human being. I used to be a baby. I'm just a human being. I'm a weak, insignificant mortal, ordinary man. And yet, you were mindful of me, you remembered me, and you saw to it that I would be the one that you chose to make your son and to put in a position of power and authority over all of creation. That's just crazy. Okay? Questions on Psalm 8. Okay, moving on then. Psalm 97 is another one he's going to quote. Psalm 97 and Psalm 2. Oh wait, do I want to do 97 first? No, let's do Psalm 2 first. Psalm 2. Both Psalm 2 and Psalm 97 basically, I think, are the same kind of psalm. 
And what makes the most sense in both cases, I think, is that they are psalms, songs, that were written with the intention of being performed probably at the coronation of a king. So as a descendant of David is being crowned king under the terms of the covenant that God made with David, as he's being crowned king, he's taking on a certain role and a certain status and a certain place. And the song is celebrating that status and honor and glory that that king is assuming on the day of his coronation. Now, I'm inclined to think, this is totally speculation on my part, but it may be that both Psalm 2 and Psalm 97, or at least one of them, may actually be sung at a coronation of David. Now, what I'm presupposing there is that David might very well, it, it, there's no record of this, but it would, it would make all the sense in the world after Nathan came to him and made this promise to him, that he went through some kind of commemorative ritual of being crowned this king in this new capacity. And it may very well be that Psalm 2 is written to be sung at that commemorative coronation, that commemorative celebration of the covenant that God had made with him where he's going to establish his throne forever. Obviously, he had already been coronated as king of Israel, but has he been coronated as the son? Don't think so. I doubt it. That, that promise hadn't been made to him yet. So it may very well be that these songs were written with David himself in view. If not, then David wrote these to be performed when Solomon, his son, was going to be crowned, and, and maybe even future sons of David after that. So Psalm 2 is specifically describing the occasion of someone assuming the throne that can be described as becoming the son of God on this day. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So notice that he actually uses the, the term Messiah to refer to this king, whoever he is. So David is called the Messiah, or Solomon is called the Messiah, which just simply means the anointed one who's been anointed to be king. And it's envisioning the enemies of God out there in the nations, the Gentile people. It's envisioning them as standing in opposition to God. And the way they express their opposition is through their opposition to his king on Mount Zion, the Messiah. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So he goes back and quotes what was said to him by Nathan uh, on behalf of God in the covenant that God made with David. You are my son. And then he says, today I have begotten you. What is that referring to? Today, when you assume that role and that office, you have become, as it were, begotten as the son of God on this day. That's why most scholars think this has to do with a coronation, the time of a coronation. Ask of me 
and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Well, that's exactly what had been promised to David. David, I will be a father to you and you will be a son to me. Everything that God rules, the son rules. What does God rule? All of creation ultimately, but short of that, the whole earth, all the nations. The whole, the whole earth belongs to God and the rightful domain of his authority is the whole earth. Therefore, that's the rightful domain of the authority of the Son, who is the embodiment of the Father's reign. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the psalm is a warning to all the nations. You need to worship Yahweh. You need to give due reverence to Yahweh. And you need to do homage to his Son. This human being who's the king on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, you need to respect him. Why? Not because he's any big deal in and of himself, but God has appointed him as his son. So the, uh, the reverence that you show to Yahweh needs to spill over into the homage that you show to his son. If you don't, he may get angry and you're going to be smashed and you're going to be defeated. Now, obviously, that's kind of hyperbolic, if what we're talking about is David or Solomon or Rehoboam or right down the line, they were, in terms of their power and their success militarily and so on, they weren't really all that more spectacular than any other king of the earth. But David is, is not looking at the realities of who he is and who Solomon is and who his offspring are, are going to be. He's looking at the realities of what God has promised. This is what God has promised with respect to his house is that he's going to establish his throne forever and give him rest from all the enemies of God. So eventually, sooner or later, some son of David has to smash with a rod of iron all of the enemies of God, defeat them, crush them, and establish his reign to the ends of the earth over all the peoples, over all the nations. So he's speaking out of the promise, not out of any literal realities that he sees and experiences. Okay, why is this significant when we get to Hebrews 1? Because who is it? Of whom is it said, you are my son, today I have begotten you? David, Solomon, Rehoboam, or some jerk like that. That's who these words are being expressed with respect to. So put it in the context then of the argument, you've got a problem with Jesus because he's a human being? Well, <laughs> Look at Psalm 2. There was a human being back behind in, in the occasion upon which Psalm 2 was being sung. That was a human being, an ordinary mortal human being. He died. And of that ordinary mortal human being, look at what got said with respect to him. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That was an ordinary human being who was going to do that. So 
how can you have a problem with the claim that Jesus is the Messiah simply because he was a human being when the Son of God from the very get-go has always been merely a human being? That shouldn't be a problem to you, he's saying. He's going to argue. Okay, we're about out of time. I have five minutes for any questions on Psalm 2. It's interesting listening because I think the more I think about this, the more problem I have with God promising what he did to David and and his descendants, not in terms of the ultimate promise fulfilled in Jesus, but more like God really like Mm -hmm. decided to like say this to these guys. Mm -hmm. That kind of that's kind of difficult for me to wrap my my mind around. But so my question is how and you may have already said this but I wasn't asking the question at the time. How would you say that um, Jesus' contemporaries thought about the whole king, son of God, the fact that... Did you say Jesus' contemporaries? Yeah, yeah, okay. or Paul. I mean, just right. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's any one way that they thought about it. Jesus' contemporaries thinking about what's it going to look like when the Messiah comes and who is he going to be and what's the Messiah going to look like would be a lot like us discussing what's the beast in Revelation going to be and what he's going to look like and how's that going to go down and what are going to be the circumstances? You know, you ask 12 of us and we're going to get 12 different answers and a lot of, I don't know. I think that's what you would have found if you'd done an on-the-street interview in the time of Jesus. Some of them would have very firm opinions about how this was all supposed to go down and who the Messiah was supposed to be and they would not agree with each other. There'd be this theory here and this other theory here and this other theory here and this other theory here. And that was part of the thing that Jesus had to get past is they had their theological constructs, right, that they held very dearly, and Jesus didn't match their template. No, you, you can't be the Messiah. I'm looking, I'm looking right at it. <laughs> I'm looking right at the picture of who you're supposed to be, and you ain't it. The thought that my picture might be wrong, and I actually have to throw my picture away, you, we understand how human that is. We get so married to our own prior conception, our preconception, that we're unwilling to even think outside of that. And that's why some people didn't believe in Jesus. I, I guess so, and maybe more specifically, do you think that the, especially the Jews, do you suspect that they were more comfortable with the idea that God had started uh, and promised to, you know, to David and, and then the other kings that he was going to that they were going to be his, the embodiment of God? It's uh, no, I think part. a lot of them were probably not comfortable with that. Remember when Jesus asked the apostles to report back, who do people say that I am? Some say that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say that you're the prophet. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you are, and they had a number of different things. And I, I think probably each of those figures played some kind of role in their eschatology and they in their thinking about how it's supposed to go down when Jesus com- or we call him Je- when the Messiah comes. Some of them, I think, even distinguished between the Son of David and the Messiah and the Son of God. I think in some of their eschatologies, they probably had three different characters who played different roles. We don't know exactly because we don't have anybody's complete picture spelled out for us, but you just get these little hints about they had various scenarios that they believed in, 
And the question was, how is Jesus fitting into the scenario that they, that they have learned, that they have been taught? So no, I don't think they were all comfortable with the concept of the Son of God that think God had in mind at the get-go back in the time of David. That's why Hebrews is written. Some of them are so uncomfortable with it that they think the Son of God can't be a human being. He, that's not the Son of David. The Son of God is something else. Son of David, he plays a role too. Yeah, there was a promise made, and he's got a role to play too, but that's not the Son of God. He's a different player. And I think it's precisely because they're un, very uncomfortable with the idea that a human being would play that role. All of them, by the time of Jesus, are very uncomfortable with unrighteous men that, that has been the only kind of king they've known in their history being the son of God, certainly. And as I said, we'll see in some of the Psalms we look at, David doesn't even expect that the promise is going to be made by just the ordinary run-of-the-mill descendants of David. There is one who's superior. There's one who's coming who's unique. He's the one that all these promises have in mind, especially Psalm 110. is just very explicit about that. God, let you go. Let, let's pray. Father, life is hard, and what we would like is some relief. We'd like the pain to go away. We'd like the problems to be solved. We'd like life to go easier. We long for that. And Lord, what you've given us is a story. What you've given us is history. This just seems so irrelevant and unrelated to our lives sometimes. But Lord, this is the center of everything that you're doing. And what's happening in our lives is somehow connected to what you're doing to bring a kingdom to your son and to glorify him that we might be glorified with him and that we might enjoy the relationship with him where we love him because he first loved us and we know him because he first knew us. And that's what you have in store for us. But Lord, we must wait. And we ask that you that you would give us patience and perseverance that we too can look into the distant future as David did and wait anxiously for the fulfillment of this promise you made to him because the promise you made to him is a promise you're making to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.